Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, buckle your seatbelts. Uh, we are about to drink from a fire hose. Uh, so this is Big Fire Hose, Little Mouth Sunday. Um, listen, if you're with us for the first time, um, wow, welcome. Uh, you picked an interesting day to show up at Crosspoint. Um, if, if you get through this Sunday, uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Um, hey, if you're using one of the pew Bibles or the chair Bibles, I call them a pew. I grew up in churches with pews. Uh, we don't have pews here, but uh, I still, it's hard for me to, to unwind that. But we're going to start on page 688. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 1. And so that would be a great place for you to follow along. Listen, um, there's gonna, we're going to read a whole bunch of scripture today. And so it might be beneficial for you rather than trying to keep up to just sort of take notes. I'm going to frame our discussion by asking and then answering six questions. And instead of trying to flip to every scripture, you may just want to wait until we post the notes. I'll post my full notes on on our webpage tomorrow afternoon. The audio of the sermon will be up tomorrow afternoon um, and then a few days later the video. So if you just want to go back and rehash it, that might be an easier way for you to handle it. Listen, this is a broad overview of probably the most complex theological issue in the Bible. And so it would be folly for us to think that we can cover all of this in one Sunday. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, we'll have this uh, Q&A this Wednesday night here uh, at uh, 7 o'clock. Child care will be available, so we want to encourage you to come to that. And secondly, also I want to mention to you that uh, we as elders of the church and as pastors of the church are in agreement over this issue. Uh, and we, we, are, we have unity theologically on this issue as leaders of the church, but this is an open-handed issue for us. And so what we mean by that is, is that at Crosspoint, we distinguish between doctrines that we hold in a closed fist that we think are essential for salvation, and, and then other doctrines that may be very, very important, like this one. We're not saying that this is unimportant. It's very important. But they are issues that we understand that Christians who love Jesus and are living fruitful lives for for his glory, uh, may disagree on. And so um, understanding this or even agreeing with where I and the uh, elders and pastors of this church come on this issue is not a requirement, certainly for salvation, and it's not even a requirement for membership here at this church. But I think that one of the things that we want to do at Crosspoint is serve you with clarity and let you know where we stand. And I also think that this issue becomes a sort of underpinning which really informs our view of Scripture and God's glory and His greatness in this world. And so although this is an open-handed issue, uh, I think it's a very important issue. And having said that, there is much space in here to wrestle with, to not fully understand, and even to some degree disagree on this issue. But, but uh, as elders, we want to serve you. I particularly want to serve you as the lead pastor of this church by, by not shirking this difficult but beautiful truth. Um, and so, um, let's read Ephesians chapter three, chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Remember, we're working our way through Ephesians. Uh, for the next couple months, we're just going to be breaking down what it says in Ephesians, but today, we're going to use this particular block in Ephesians that we'll be in for a couple weeks as a springboard to a bigger issue of what does the Bible mean when it says that we've been predestined by God? So let me read Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Well, that's all one sentence in the original Greek language that this letter was written in. Can you imagine all of that? That is a sentence on spiritual steroids. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, thank you for your beautiful word. Uh, Lord, I pray that today that we would delight in the God of our salvation. Lord, help us as we engage and wrestle with probably the most debated and difficult and controversial truth in all of scriptures. I pray today, Lord, that you would give all of us, especially me, a dose of humility and awe and reverence for your word and just a huge dose of charitability and humility towards one another in this. Lord, for my Christian brother and sisters that are in this room, I do pray, God, that you would stir our affections. For my brothers and sisters that agree with where I stand and where we as elders stand on this issue, Lord, would this be more than just a doctrinal system or point? But would this wreck us? Would this humble us? Would this smash our pride and cause us to worship and give us great confidence in who you are and what you have called us to do. And for my friends, my brothers and sisters and in the Lord who may disagree, Lord, would you, would you cause them to wrestle and would you humble them as well and would you let them know that I as a pastor love them and want to serve them well with what I believe to be clear biblical truth. Lord, for my friends in this room who do not yet know Jesus, and certainly, Lord, I believe that there are people in this room in a crowd this size who have not yet passed from death to life. Lord, logic might tell us that this would be a type of topic that might run counter to evangelism. But Lord, I actually think it propels it because what we are about to unpack is such a beautiful picture of who you are that, Lord, I pray that today you would make your glory and your grace and your love so irresistible, so altogether more desirable than anything else on this earth that, God, people, by the beauty of Christ and his work on the cross would pass from death to life, that they would 
that they would be given a new heart so that they would see the glory of your grace. And Lord, I pray above all that all of us today would leave this place saying, surely the Lord has shown himself mighty to me in my life. Pray that we'd be able to say that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what is the issue here? Do we believe in Jesus because we first chose him? Or do we believe in Jesus because God first, before the foundations of the world, chose us? Theologians have distinguished between a one-handed view of salvation and a two-handed view of salvation. The one-handed view meaning that God, in his complete and utter sovereignty, before time began, not because of anything good or meritorious or any foreseen faith, chose some people to be saved as an act of his gracious will alone before the foundations of the world and set his love on them and predestined them to salvation. That's the one-handed view. That's the view, by the way, that I hold. The other view is a two-handed view, a kind of a synergistic view that God uh, communicates grace to an individual and does kind of most of the work, but the decisive act of what makes us a Christian is this sinner in and of themselves essentially exercising faith to trust in Jesus. So uh, I believe in this one-handed view that predestination is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some to be saved in Christ, not on account of any foreseen goodness, merit, or faith in them, but only because of his sovereign grace. Well, let's frame this discussion with six questions that we're going to work through. The first question is that we have to start with is the question of what has sin done to us? This is very important. How you answer this question will, will really frame the entire discussion. Understanding this question well, biblically, uh, really sets up the answer to this greater question of what is predestination. We'll just take a brief survey of the effects of sin. Most of us, I think, if we've got any Bible in us at all, if we spend any time in church, especially here in the South where, where uh, uh, people like to you know, kind of pound this verse into us, we've probably heard Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think we probably all could quote that. We all know that. But if that's all that we know about what the Bible says about sin, then really we fall short in understanding a full view of what the Bible says about sin and what it has done to us. Because we could just read that verse and say, oh, well, we've sort of merely missed the mark or sin has neutralized us or made us less than what we were intended to be by God. But the Bible goes much further than that when it speaks about the consequences of sin. Romans chapter 5, just a couple chapters later, verse 12, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. It says that, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning our first father, Adam, through him and through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God in the garden, sin entered in the world through that one man, and then death came through that sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so there's a couple things going on there in that verse. First is that sin 
in our first parents, Adam and Eve, now has entered in. It has a portal into all of humanity. And this sin has consequences, which is death. Now, we know that it didn't cause them to immediately die, but it certainly brought about their eventual physical death. But it did more than that, as we'll read here in just a moment. It caused, really, their spiritual death in their standing before God, and it spread to all men. So just as my children carry my physical DNA, we all carry our first father's spiritual DNA in that we are now by nature and by our own choice, because we have all fallen short of the glory of God, we are by nature sinners, and this sin has the consequence of not just neutralizing us or making us less than optimal, but it has the consequence of spiritual and ultimately physical death. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So he's talking to everybody here. It's not just this particular group of Ephesians. He's indicting really all of humanity, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, all of us now, friends, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So there in verse 1, he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So he's talking to people who actually at that point were physically alive, but he's declaring them dead in their sin. We read it earlier this morning in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. Sin enslaves us to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so it's important for us to understand that our sin hasn't just neutralized or diminished us. It has left us unable to love God, spiritually separated from Him, and under His right and just wrath. This is what uh, Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 34. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person, and in Paul's vernacular and his language, the natural person contrasted with the spiritual person is the natural person is a person before they have been regenerated, before they have become a Christian. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is, listen to this, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there we see from that verse very clearly that sin has not only left us spiritually dead, separated from God, but it has rendered us unable to even understand spiritual truth that would make us right with God. And he writes virtually the same sentiment in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, in my favorite chapter in the Bible, which we're going to hit on in a little bit later, some verses that will be very important in this discussion. Romans 8, verse 7, this is what Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, in other words, an unbeliever, a person who is not a Christian, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So do you see from these scriptures, friends, just a few. And we could spend all day. I mean, I got more. I got more. But you guys got to eat lunch. All right? I don't want you to leave halfway through. 
We could spend all day reading scriptures on what sin has done to us. So I need you to understand that the biblical view of sin is that it hasn't just diminished us. It hasn't just neutralized us. It hasn't just uh, removed the possibility of us having a good life here on this earth. It has spiritually separated us from God. In fact, it has spiritually killed us and it has made us unable to love God. You may ask, well, what about the good works, in quotations, the good works and deeds that unbelievers do? That's a good and valid question because certainly we see people who are not Christians being used by God in some measure to do good and wonderful things. I mean, we thank God for doctors who are not necessarily Christians who may be inventing cures to terrible diseases. In a sense, to understand this question and the answer to this question, you have to realize the difference between God's saving grace that He gives a person to trust in Him, which we'll talk about in a second, and the common grace that God gives just the whole world. So in a sense, even though this world has fallen and uh, we have rebelled against God and this brought death into all the world, God, through His common grace, is really holding back sin and evil from spreading as badly as the cancer of sin and evil could possibly spread. And, and because God is good and gracious, He causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, and He gives a measure of common grace to even unbelievers to at times do good things to serve His glorious purposes. This is what Lorraine Butner, a theologian at Princeton in the early 1900s. By the way, he was a man, but his name was Lorraine. It's kind of like a boy named Sue. I don't know, probably got beat up a lot in middle school. But anyway, this cat named Lorraine Butner, a very noted uh, theologian back in the early 1900s at Princeton, said this. He said, this doctrine of total inability, which declares that men are dead in sin, does not mean that all men are equally bad. We're not flattening sin here, friends. You know, when, when, when Osama bin Laden was, was assassinated by our troops, all these Christian blogs, and we're like, oh, well, before we celebrate this, you know, we need to realize that we're sinful too, and that's what we deserve too. Well, yes, but let's not flatten all sin. I mean, it, that's a good thing that that despicable man was killed, right? I mean, so, so let's not flatten it right here. Let's not, so, so what we're saying is that it doesn't mean that all men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be nor that anyone is as entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human nature is evil in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is dead. Of course, we know it eventually will die. What it does mean is that since the fall, listen to this last sentence, since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, and that he is wholly unable to love God or to do anything meriting salvation. Even the good works, friends, listen to this, even the good works that unbelievers do, although God in His providence may use them to display His glory, when even a good work is done apart from God, at its core, that good work by that creature becomes idolatry. Because God and His glory are the point and reason for everything. So when a creature, a created being, does something good, but does not acknowledge His Creator as the source of that goodness, do you see how even that good act at its core, even though God could use it for His ultimate purposes, that that good act by that creature, when He doesn't acknowledge that it flows from His Creator, 
becomes at its core, at its end, an idol because that creature is, is not recognizing the creator as the source of that goodness. So that thing becomes an idol. So do you see how the scientists who may come up with a cure to cancer, God may use that for his glory, but that one particular science, if he do, scientist, if he doesn't acknowledge God's sufficiency and, 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 and trust in him as the source of all good, then he will glory in his, own, in his own wisdom, which at its end becomes idolatry for that particular created being. So even the good works that people do apart from Christ become an idol. And so what has sin done to us, friends? It has left us completely separated from God, unable to save ourselves. If you don't get that question right, friends, it really mucks up your understanding of the Bible. Leads us to our second question, which is a valid question that often springs from this, especially in our age of uh, man-centeredness, is do we have a free will? Do we have free will? Well, that's, that's a much more complicated question and answer than meets the eye. In a sense, yes, we have a free will, but in another sense, our will is, is only free to do what our diseased and polluted fallen heart desires to do. So if, if you want to say yes to the answer of we have free will, I would, I, would, I would say yes, we are free, but we are only free, listen to this, we are only free to do whatever our heart desires to do. But you see, friends, the issue is our hearts are not good. They're not even neutral. Our hearts are separated from God. We just, we just went through that. And what has sin done to us? Sin has made us incapable of even desiring to submit to the will of God. We read that in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 7. And so, yes, we're free, but we're really shackled in our freedom because we're free only to do what our wicked hearts want to do. And even when that seems to be good things, we realize that at the end of that good thing, apart from God regenerating our hearts, is really wickedness because we're trying to really set ourselves up as the end of all things rather than God. And so we're free in a sense, but we're free really only to do what our wicked, fallen hearts want to do, which is make ourselves God. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, free will is an empty term whose reality is lost. And a lost liberty, according to my grammar, is no liberty at all. Lorraine Butner again says, as the bird with a broken wing is free to fly but not able, so the natural man is free to come to God but not able. How can he repent of a sin when he loves it? How can he come to God when he hates him? This is the inability of the will under which man labors. And friends, remember, think about sin, not just in the terms of public sin and drunkenness and crime and felonies, but think of sin as setting yourself up as independent of God. Think about sin as exalting self-righteousness above and apart from God. And so, yes, we're free, but we're free in our fallen state only to do what our heart desires and our heart always, ultimately, at its core, desires to make much of ourselves rather than God, which is idolatry. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 that whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. And from within, out of the heart, comes evil. And so, yes, we're free, but we're free only in a sense to do whatever 
our wicked hearts desire. Spurgeon, how could we do a sermon on predestination without a few Spurgeon quotes? You knew it was coming. This is what Charles Spurgeon, the great London Baptist pastor, said in the mid-1800s. I might preach to you forever, he said to his church. I might borrow the eloquence of Demosthenes or of Cicero, but ye, I don't know who Demosthenes is, but I just want to say it over and over again, Demosthenes, but you will not come to Christ. I might beg of you on my knees with tears in my eyes and show you the horrors of hell and the joys of heaven, the sufficiency of Christ and your own lost condition, but none of you would come unto Christ of yourselves unless the Spirit that rested on Christ should draw you. It is true of all men in their natural condition that they will not come unto Christ. So, let's just summarize here before we move on to the third question. A summary of our natural state before God apart from Christ, all of us. We can make a few summary statements. Friends, there are no good people apart from Christ. There are no good people apart from Christ. None of us are good in and of ourselves. There are no neutral people. There are only unregenerate, fallen, sinful, rebellious people and people who by God's mercy have been regenerated by Him. Another little summary statement we can make that's important for us to see is that we don't need mere improvement or help, friends. We need salvation. A correct understanding of the doctrine of sin leads us down this understanding that, friends, we don't need help. We don't need to know how to live life better on Tuesday or at work and our marriages ultimately. We need, the most pressing need on the soul of every human being is to be brought from death to life. We need to be rescued, not improved. We need to be resuscitated, not helped. We need to be regenerated, not merely encouraged. And the final little summary of our natural state before God apart from Christ is that man's ability or freedom to love, choose God was utterly and completely lost in the fall. So that brings us to our third question now, and we're whittling down into how God saves, or what predestination means, and that's our third question, which will answer that question, I think, most decisively, and how does God save sinners? How does God save sinners? Okay, we go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is a very important chapter. Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 are probably the most decisive chapters in the Bible on this question of the sovereignty of God and salvation. So how does God save sinners? While you're finding Romans 8, let's just make a, a summary statement. That he decides, he chooses, he elects us in Christ in eternity past. We read that in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So friends, regardless, I mean all Christians, regardless of whether they understand this issue or whether they're on their one side of the issue or the other, all of us obviously have to admit that God predestines because it says it there in the scriptures. He chose us. Another way to say that would be he elected us in him, meaning Jesus, 
before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So it's clear, friends, that God predestines. It's clear. Obviously, it says it there. Nobody argues that. All Christians, to some degree, believe in predestination. But the issue is, based upon what does God predestine? Does he predestine because he looks through the portals of time and he sees who will choose him and exercise faith in him and he elects people based on foreseen faith in that person? Or does God, because of a sovereign act of his grace and mercy and free will, does he elect people before the foundations of the world and predestine them to be his people solely because of his grace? Well, I think that the latter is how he does it, as I said. I think that it's clear that God predestines solely because of his grace. So let's go to Romans chapter 8, and I think this will help us whittle down a biblical answer to that. All right, Romans chapter 8, this is a coffee cup verse. Um, If you've got any youth group time in you in the Bible Belt South, you've got a shirt with this verse on you. Just this one verse, though, just 28. You don't go further into 29 because 29 gets scary. (laughs) But you got something in your house from Lifeway or Sanctuary uh, you got something in your house with Romans 8.28 on it. You got a bumper sticker. You got something, right? Here it is. Let's give it to you, but we're going to keep going. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's hold hands now and sing, Kumbaya, my Lord. I mean, that's just people just throw that out there. You know, just the worst thing has happened to you and, you know, your nervous Christian friend doesn't know what else to say. Throw down the juice cart of Romans 8.28 on you and hope everything will be okay, right? I mean, we, I mean, we love that verse. We cherish that verse. But a couple things we need to understand about that verse is, number one, it says that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So this is not like a universal verse. It doesn't apply to everybody. God's providence to make everything work together for their good and His glory applies only to those. Okay, so that's the first thing. And then secondly, there's a few verses after Romans 8, 28, which rarely make their way onto the coffee cup. Maybe because of spacing or maybe because they're tough. I don't know. But let's keep going. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, those are some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. The theologians for centuries have called that the golden chain of salvation. But let's go back to the beginning of verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, What does that word foreknew mean? In the Greek, that word is prognosko. And really, we're just looking at that root word, gnosko, because uh, whatever that word means, what what does it mean for God to know you? What does it mean for God to know you? Well, one interpretation is, is that God looks down, as I mentioned before, looks down the portals of time, knows who will have faith in him, and predestines or elects or chooses based on his foreseen knowledge 
of that person's faith, because clearly God predestines. It's just what is he predestined upon? And so one view, the view that I would disagree with, says that God looks down the portals of time and foreknows who will trust in him and predestines according to that. Well, there's a couple problems with that view. The first is, is what that word means in its richness when we look at it across the Bible. Okay, that word gnosko is a word that is, is, is person-centered. It, it can mean just a, a general knowledge, but more often in the Bible, it has a personal term. In fact, in the Old Testament, and this is a Greek word that is interpreting an Old Testament Hebrew word. So remember that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then it was also translated into Greek. And so everywhere in the Old Testament where uh, this particular word yada in the Greek came, I mean, I'm sorry, yada in the Hebrew came about, which is to know in a personal, intimate sort of way, generally, it was translated with this intimate, personal word gnosko in the Greek. And so we see in the Old Testament God saying things like to his people in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, I knew you above all the other peoples in the earth. And so, of course, God knows everybody, right? I mean, it's not saying that God doesn't know the parasites and the Hittites and everybody else, but he's saying to his people, I know you in a special way. I, you, can, you can translate that, I for loved you. I love you. I love you amongst all the people of the earth, right? And then that word yada, the Hebrew, that we get uh, the translation Greek gnosko from, it also has the meaning of to know, like he knew her, and Adam went to be with his wife and knew her, earmuffs parents for just a second, but you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, that's where we get, he knew her in a, boys cover your ears for just a second, if you're, but he knew her in a biblical sense, right? And, and when he knew her in a biblical sense, it's not like he knew a set of facts about her, it means that he loved her, he loved her. And that's the connotation of that word there in verse 29. And then he's speaking of those. For those, those people, not a set of facts, but those people that he knew. We could translate that, those people that he foreloved. He did something to. He then predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Those not all, but those, a definitive number of people that he foreloved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, some people would say, as I mentioned, that what he foreknew about them was a set of facts that that person would come to faith in Christ. And friends, let me just for a moment, say, okay, let's, let's take that as what that verse means. I don't agree with that interpretation, but let's take that as it. Do you realize that that really doesn't solve any problems? Because if the main objection to the utter sovereignty of God and salvation is that, no, how, that can't be. That puts the future set. Then what, what, you know, what good is it to even preach or pray or evangelize or witness to people? I mean, you know, the future's set because God has set his love on somebody. They're going to come to Christ. Well, friends, it, that... Seeing that as foreknown knowledge of somebody's foreseen faith doesn't, doesn't really get us outside of that seeming quandary. Because if God knows something in the future and he has predestined somebody before the foundation of the time, he predestined them because he knew that they would come to faith, isn't that just as much set in time as if God foreknew them based on nothing foreseen in them? So either way, you have a decision of God to make the future set 
He's predestining. This doesn't get us off the seeming hook that we want to get God off of. Either way, whether God predestines us because of nothing good in us, no foreseen faith, but just because he loves a certain group of people, or whether he looks down the portals of time and predestines them because he sees something in them and predestines them according to that, still, friends, the philosophical man-centered objection of this makes the future fatalistic, it doesn't answer that future. It's still fatalistic. Do you see that? Either way, determined, God is determined There's nothing in that verse that would say that God has done anything but set his love on people solely because of his grace and not because of anything good in them. And friends, even if we conceded that maybe God put his love on people because of foreseen faith, we still still wonder, where did that faith come from? Why does person A have faith that was strong enough to exercise faith in Jesus and person B not have faith? strong enough faith to exercise faith in Jesus. Why was person A's faith stronger and person B's faith weaker? Why? Ultimately, then, we have to concede that salvation, to some degree, is outside of God if we give in to to that faulty logic because that person's faith was somehow better. Well, why? Well, God's the creator. Everything starts with God, friends. Do you see that? So it still doesn't get God off the hook because if we say that God predestines according to foreseen faith, then we still ask, well, why did God give that person stronger faith than that person? It still doesn't get God off the hook, so to speak, in our mind. And that's where the scriptures humble us. And we see that God foreloves his people and he predestines them to be conformed. And it's really important for us to see now the logic that Paul continues on. He says, then he called them. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's really important for us to see how does God save sinners. He doesn't just predestine them before the foundation of the world, and then that's it. He then calls them. He causes the gospel to come to bear on their hearts and causes them to see Jesus. He predestines us, as we read in Ephesians, through Jesus' work, through his life, death, and resurrection. This is what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so although God has ordained our salvation, he does it through the means of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And so he puts Jesus forward as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he turns his wrath, friends. This is how, because remember the quandary that we're in of sin. Sin, we're guilty before God. And so even though God has predestined his people to salvation, we still haven't solved the sin problem yet, right? And it's not like God just says, oh, well, gosh, that was, that was tough. Boy, you guys had a rough first testament, and the second testament went pretty bad too. Ooh, gosh, well, I predestined you. Good for you. No, God takes care of our sin problem. He doesn't just predestine. He saves us through Jesus' work on the cross. He puts the just forward for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
And so even though God predestines, he solves the sin problem by allowing the perfect sacrifice of Jesus to die on the cross and absorb his wrath for human rebellion and to turn that wrath into favor now for all who will trust in Jesus. And so now, our standing with God is changed through Jesus' substitute on the cross. Jesus atones for, he satisfies, he absorbs God's wrath and justice for our sin. He extinguishes it, every drop of it. And now because he lived a perfect and totally righteous life of obedience to God, he now on the cross takes our sin and extinguishes it and gives us his righteousness so that now his people are clothed in the character of Christ. That's what we talked about last week, that we are united in Christ. So when God sees us, he sees us not apart from Christ, but always clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. The verse in in the Bible that speaks to this is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, for our sake, listen to this, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God doesn't just predestine He rescues from sin. And he does that by absorbing sin and all of its consequences through Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross. And then Jesus rises again in victory over sin and all of its consequences and now gives to his people life because he's alive. Jesus can give life because he defeated death. He is alive. And so, friends, it's important for us to understand that we're not just predestined and now everything else is just kind of filler in between Genesis and Revelation. No, God, at great cost to himself, atoned for human sin as a display of his glory by making his people not just predestined, but making them like Jesus in their new nature as they trust in him. And he brings this gospel good news of what Jesus has done to atone for sin through the speaking and preaching and believing of the gospel. This is what 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 through 6 says. Even if our gospel, that word gospel, this good news of what Jesus has done is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So in some sense, friend, yeah, the, the devil has power. He blinds people. No doubt about it. But friends, it's important you understand that the devil's power is subordinate to God's. It's not a dualism here. It's not like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader battling on some bridge in a movie, right? Like, you know, a 50-50 battle of good and evil. We'll read here in just a moment that God is sovereign over this. And when he wants to break through darkness, he does. It says uh, he's blinded unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen to verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you've got darkness of sin, and you've got a decision by God to break through the hearts of some people to bring light. Darkness can't generate light in and of itself. You've got a decision by God where many people, the minds of unbelievers, are shrouded by the enemy, 
God then breaks through that light and darkness and shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus. And he does this by giving us the gifts of faith and repentance. Ephesians 2 verse 8. We'll read it in a couple weeks. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, friends. It is the gift of God. So even the faith that we have to see Jesus, to have his work applied to us, is something that God gave us. Remember when we talked about the two different types of, where does that faith come from? Friends, saving faith is a gift that God gives to his people whom he intends to save. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast, so that no one can say, in and of myself, my faith was stronger than yours. I'm more intelligent than you. That's why I'm a Christian. It's solely a gift of God. And he opens the heart of his people through calling them with the gospel, shining the light of his sovereign grace on their hearts, and then justifying them through Jesus' work on the cross and guaranteeing their eventual glorification, even though they will continue to struggle with sin, guaranteeing their eventual, eventual, eventual glorification as they stand before Jesus. Romans 8, 28 through 30 are some of the sweetest and most important verses in the Bible. How does God save sinners? I think that clearly the Bible affirms that he predestines them according to the glory of his grace based solely on his free will and not on anything good in that person before the foundation of the world. Which brings us to question number four, which I'm sure is rattling around in many of our hearts. Well, does God's grace merely enable us to make our own choice or does it actually save? So does, God, does God's grace that comes to us, does it merely enable us to make our own choice or does it actually save us? If grace, friends, merely makes possible salvation, we are still left to wonder, as we talked about before, why some people are saved and others are not. Is it because one was given more faith? Is it because one was stronger and more able in and of themselves to exercise that faith? If so, ultimately, we must trace the Christian's stronger faith back to a decision of God to give this stronger faith to one person and not the other. So really, you see how if you think that God merely enables salvation, it doesn't really solve the problem because then where, where does stronger faith come from? Ultimately, it has to come from God. No, friends, I think that it's clear from the Scriptures that faith actually saves. Go to John chapter 6. Let me read a couple of verses out of John chapter 6. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me, listen to this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from the Father not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. And then go down to verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's that inability. Remember, we can't come to God unless Jesus draws him. And so there's a couple things we can learn from just these these few verses in John chapter 6, there's three impossibilities. Number one, it's impossible for a person to come to Christ unless they are drawn by God. Verse 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
Number two, it's impossible for someone whom the Father draws not to come to Him. That's in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So when Jesus draws somebody, they come. And number three, it is impossible for a person who is drawn and comes to Jesus to be cast out or lost. Verse 37, we just read it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so we see from just this brief picture of Jesus there in his words that his grace always saves. His people will come to him. Those, this number of people that God has given him will come to him. Friends, we could go further in John chapter 11 and see this beautiful picture of salvation in the story of Lazarus. John chapter 11. Take some time this afternoon and read it. I think Lazarus is in the Bible to give us a sort of object lesson of salvation. Lazarus isn't in the Bible and it's the story of the resurrection of this friend of Jesus named Lazarus. It's not in the Bible just to show us that Jesus has the power over physical life and death. We know that. He raised a couple other people from the dead, and he came back from the, life, from the dead himself. Lazarus is in the Bible because it's a picture of how God saves people. It says that Lazarus was dead for three days. In fact, the King James Version says that he stinketh, just to sort of emphasize that he's dead. He's not kind of dead. He's dead, right? He's dead in the grave. Jesus takes his own sweet time to get to the tomb and Lazarus is dead and Jesus, by his grace that is always effective, by the power of his gospel, says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus did not exercise faith in his deadness in order to make Jesus choose him. Jesus gave him life and that life as its first breath exercised faith and it came. And Lazarus came out of the tomb. Friends, that's a picture of salvation. Life, rise up, dead soul, and come to life. And that's a picture of how God saves people. Question number five. Two more quick questions and then some encouragements. Does this make God unfair? Seeing as God making a pre-time decision to save some people for salvation and not all. Friends, I, on the surface, I can understand how we wrestle with this, believe me. But friends, when we understand sin biblically, we realize that no one deserves God's mercy. Friends, don't be duped into a very man-centered view of this and objection that that this view of God's sovereignty is it sort of leaves people knocking at the door of heaven, pleading to get in, but God shuts the door on them. Friends, no one wants God. No one runs after God. That God would save any is a magnificent display of his kindness. Just as an illustration here, think of, think of 10 drowned swimmers in the bottom of the ocean. And in the view of God being utterly sovereign, we have these 10 dead swimmers who are in the bottom of the ocean. And you have God in his sovereign grace and kindness reaching down, grabbing five of those dead sinners and bringing them up onto the shore and breathing life back into their water-filled lungs and bringing them back to life. And we may say, oh, well, what about the other five? Well, friends, the other view of how God saves really doesn't solve that problem because let's look at another group of 10 dead sinners who are at the bottom of the ocean drowned, 
dead because of sin. Not flailing, but dead. And the only other option is, is that God sort of halfway resuscitates all ten of them, brings them back up out of their deadness, lets them sort of poke their head back above the line of the water and says, now any of you that will choose to swim back to the shore, come, come, come. And five of them do swim back, but five of them sink back down because regardless of where you stand on this, friends, you realize that not all are saved. People die and are separated from God for eternity. And friends, although this other option may appeal more to our sort of man-centered logic, do you realize still that you have a God who has made a decision not to save all? Either way, friends, it doesn't get God off the hook. God could save all, but he doesn't. Why would God just resuscitate those ten and give them a chance and then let the other five go down while these five, because of their faith, come? Friends, that doesn't solve the problem. Friends, our real, listen to me clearly on this. Our real objection, and it belies our man-centeredness, our real objection is that God would let anybody sin and be separated from Him. Our real objection is that any go to hell. And friends, when we rage our fist at God, we belie our man-centeredness. Friends, God has made a decision not to save all, regardless of what you view about this doctrine. And we have to wrestle with that and deal with it biblically. Either way, God makes a decision in His mysterious will not to save all. Which brings us to our final question, why? Friends, this may be the most difficult question of all. Why does God choose to save for some to be saved and not others? Friends, we must approach this issue and our, our answer with, it with, with much humility First of all, we need to realize that our knowledge is partial and limited. Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. In other words, we're, we're looking through a, a dim glass. We don't have full view of all that God does. All of God's will is not revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever. Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, speaking for the Lord, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, the only answer I think the Bible gives us to the answer of why would God save some and not others is given to us in Romans chapter 9. And this is one of the most pride-smashing, humbling God-exalting chapters in the Bible. And this is what Paul gives us as a clue to that answer is why would God even allow human fallenness and separation which would lead to some not being with God forever? Why would God even allow that? And in this chapter in Romans chapter 9, Paul is breaking down the sovereignty of God and salvation using Jacob and Esau as a sort of picture of God's grace, how God set his for love on Jacob, but not on Esau. Not because of anything good in Jacob or bad in Esau, but he says earlier in the chapter, in verse 11, though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his, hall, because of his call, she was told, the mother, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
In verse 18, he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so we see this picture of God's free grace in Romans chapter 9. But now, again, to our question, why would God do this? And I think the only trace of an answer is given to us in Romans 9. And Paul writes this, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Listen to verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Listen to verse 22. And if you can't read the, if you don't read this verse with just humility and tears in your eyes, your heart is cold. Verse 22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So friends, I think that what Paul is saying there is that God has chosen to save some and not others as a display of his glory as a display of his mysterious grace. Because, friends, the point of the universe is not everything working out for us. The point of the universe is not people. It's God and the display of his greatness. And so God has deemed it so, so that his greatness might be on display. Friends, that is the most humbling, pride-smashing truth in the Bible. I think it's the answer closest we can get to this side of eternity as to why God would even allow this. I end with this. I know there are objections in your heart and mind, so come Wednesday and we'll talk through as many of them as we can, but one objection certainly is why should we pray and even do evangelism? Well, friends, the certainty of the end does not preclude the necessity of the means. God ordains not only what will happen, but also the means to make it happen. A.A. Uh, a. Hodge, a Princeton theologian, said in the early 1900s, this is, he kind of says it sarcastically, he said, if God has eternally decreed that you should live, what is the use of your breathing? If God has eternally decreed that you should talk, what is the use of your opening your mouth? If God has eternally decreed that you should reap a crop, what is the use of your sowing seed? If God has eternally decreed that your stomach should contain food, what is the use of your eating? He's saying this sarcastically. He's saying, obviously, we believe that God ordains these things in our life, but we don't question whether or not we should actually breathe. Friends, actually, if we view this on the flip side, this view of God's sovereignty, which I believe is utterly biblical, gives us great confidence in our salvation because we can be like Paul in Acts chapter 18 before he goes to Corinth. He's scared. He's there in Corinth. He's got two believers with him, and he's, he's scared, and, and God shows up to him and speaks to him and says, don't be afraid. Go to this city because I have many people here. The gospel hadn't even hit Corinth yet, but God assures him that he has many people in here. So this guarantees the effectiveness of the gospel. It's not based on us. And God uses the means of prayer and evangelism. God never saves anybody apart from the gospel. He doesn't save people apart from their understanding of the light of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so there are people in Columbus who need to hear about Jesus. And if they don't hear about Jesus, 
They will not be with Jesus forever. And there are people that God has ordained for us to go to to share that we must be obedient. Friends, is that not the height of arrogance to say, well, I'm outside of God's command. God is sovereign. And so all of these commands in Scripture don't apply to me. He's going to do what he does. Friends, that's the height of man-centeredness. God is sovereign over the ends and the means, and he has ordained the prayers of his people and the preaching of the gospel to be the means by which he brings people to faith. And so we as the created should be busy in boldness to proclaim the gospel, believing that God alone has the power to bring people from death to life. I end with four encouragements. To the person wondering if you're amongst God's chosen. Friends, do you realize the fact that if you're even wondering about this, it's likely good evidence that God is drawing you or that you're already his child? I mean, how do you know if you're a Christian? Because you raised your hand at youth camp on Thursday night? Or because you're coming to church? No, the, the way the Bible says that we know we're Christians is we have placed our faith in what Jesus has done on the cross and we've turned from self-righteousness and our idols and sin. Friends, when we believe in Jesus, we are regenerated, and when that root takes hold in our heart, we will bear some degree of fruit. We will turn from trust in ourselves and turn in trust and love for Jesus. So how do you know you're a Christian? Do you love Jesus, friends? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to serve him? Do you want to be like him? Do you love his people? Do you love his purposes? Are you perfect? No, friends, that's not what I'm asking. Do you, do you not struggle with sin? No, that's not what I'm asking. Do you love, do you see Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Are you trusting in what he did on the cross alone as you're right standing with God? Friends, if that's where your heart is, you didn't get that on your own. It's because you're God's child. And even if you're seeing that for the first time right now, it's because God in his kindness and mercy is drawing you to him. What else is your hope? Trust in Jesus right now. My second encouragement to the Christian who is fearful or maybe even lazy in their witness Yes, it is God and his gospel that saved, not our persuasion. But he has ordained that we be the means. He has many people in this city who are not yet Christians, who before time began, he predestined to be Christians. And now God is depending on us to be the means by which he brings those people to faith in him. So there is work to be done. So cast off your man-centeredness. Cast off you're looking at yourself and your preparedness stop gazing at your navel christian and be free and full and bold with the gospel because it is the power of god that saves not our charisma be encouraged this emboldens evangelism my third encouragement is to the christian who is beaten down by sin and circumstance and friends this is i know this because this is so often me, be encouraged in this truth. If you are wrestling with some sin and you struggle with depression and you've trusted in Jesus and you, sometimes that little doubt comes into your mind, I wonder if God really loves me or if I really love God. Friends, be encouraged. God has never lost one of his sheep. Paul writes to Timothy, I know whom I have believed in 2 Timothy 1.12, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Your salvation is about God's grace 
before and after. So salvation is not something that God enacts and then you got to hold on while the wind blows and hoping that maybe it doesn't blow you away. No, no, friends. God doesn't elect you to lose you. God saved you for his glory. He keeps you for his glory. He preserves you for his glory. And one day, he will glorify you for his glory. So friends, this truth should embolden the Christian with confidence to fight sin. Why? Because you can fall back and be lazy in grace? No, because the love that predestined you, predestined you for a purpose. And that purpose, as we read in Romans eight twenty nine, is to be predestined to the image of Jesus. Friends, when I was struggling and lost in lust as an early man in my early 20s, this verse grabbed my soul and I realized that it was my destiny to be like Jesus because God set his love on me. And it became steel in my spine to fight sin. So young man who's getting beat up by pornography, young lady who's giving her body away because she's chasing the broken love of some punk, let this verse put steel feel in your spine. You were predestined not just to waffle and struggle here on this life, but to be an example of God's grace that never fails. And he loves you, young lady. He loves you, young man. You have been predestined not because of anything you did, but because of God's love, which never fails. Finally, to, to the person, my final encouragement to the person whose child or loved one or friend has not yet trusted in Jesus, and you're wrestling with this truth. Friends, I, I know that. I know that struggle. Where would you, where would you rather place your hope? In a God who is rich in mercy? Or in the shackled, rebellious will of your loved one? No, friends. You pray to a God who is sovereign. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, even while we were dead in sins and trespasses. So, friends, this truth Encourage us to hope in a God who delights to save. What's the only other opportunity, alternative? It's to just hope that the shackled will of our rebellious loved one may in and of themselves come to Jesus. Friends, what hope is that? This is a great encouragement for a parent whose child is lost. It's, it's a great encouragement for a son whose father isn't walking with Jesus. Our only hope is the rich and free grace of God. I end with probably my favorite Spurgeon quote that highlights this so well, friends. He says, come. Come in your disorder. Listen, friends, if you've been, if your heart right now, listen, before I read the rest of it, this, your heart has bristled through this whole talk, and I realize it's been forever. Thank the people that or taking care of your kids right now when, when you get to them. If your heart is bristled right now, do you realize that nothing is shutting you out of God's grace except your hard heart? And right now, listen to these words and let your heart be softened. Come in your disorder. 
I mean come to your heavenly Father in all your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus just as you are, leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, you that are the very sweepings of creation. Come, though you, are hardly, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not? Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text and cannot put it more strongly. The Lord God himself takes to himself the gracious title, Him that justifieth the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is that not wonderful? a wonderful word for you? Do not delay until you have considered this matter well, friends. So come. Is your heart wicked? Has your heart been hardened to God? Come right now. The gospel has the power to save. It hits a human heart and it brings life. Come to Jesus now, even now. Look to him, not to yourself. Look to Jesus, not to yourself. Come to Jesus even now and you will be saved. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to Jesus now. Now. There's nothing holding you back from heaven but your own hard heart. And the gospel can melt even the hardest of hearts. And God delights in doing so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Things that I have said that were wrong or off, let them fall to the ground. Things that were true, let them hit our hearts. For Christians in this room, I pray that this would stir our affections for Jesus. That it would empower godliness. That it would embolden witness. For Christians who are in this room who wrestle with this truth and struggle with it, God, uh, would you let them know that regardless of where they fall on this issue, I, as their pastor, love them. And Lord, let them wrestle and see if nothing else, regardless of where they fall out on this issue, let them see your beauty so that they would fall more in love with Jesus. And Lord, for people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, many of them who probably think that they already are, but they just made a sort of public confession and there's no real turning in their life. There's been no real faith or repentance. God, right now, would you break through their hard heart like only you can? And would you cause them to see Jesus? Would you shine in their hearts the light of the knowledge of Jesus? Lord, we know that you delight in doing this, so would you do it now, I pray in Jesus' name.